Mike, so I know we've done this before, but still, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. I'm uh, Mike Young. Uh, my current roles are as the owner and director of performance for Athletic Lab Sports Performance Training Center, as well as the director of performance for uh, the North Carolina Courage, a women's soccer club, football club. Uh, I have a... Um, Background in coaching and sports science. My educational background has me with a master's in uh, coaching science and undergrad and a uh, PhD minor in physiology and a PhD in biomechanics. And I've worked in as a sports scientist with a couple of published papers uh, in a variety of different subjects. I've primarily worked, uh, however, as a coach and a performance director over the years. Uh, in a variety of sports, uh, most notably in soccer, uh, as well as track and field. Uh, track and field is my athletic roots, uh, where I was a track and field athlete and then coached at LSU, uh, where we won several national championships, and as well as a couple other universities. And then I've subsequently gone on to coach uh, a couple national champions, uh, international competitors, world championship competitors, Olympic com competitors in a variety of events in, in the sport of track and field. Uh, and then while I'm coaching track and field and running athletic lab, I uh, operate as the performance director for the North Carolina Courage, taking care of their sports science, and their strength and conditioning and their speed work and their warmups and on-field conditioning and everything that would fall under the realm of performance. How 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 can you like you're only a man and you work with so many <laughs> so many different stuff at the same time uh it it is um one i i really enjoy what i do um in some cases i've probably gotten myself into doing too much uh my you know my family has oftentimes paid the price for i've made some sacrifices for for me taking on too much and I, uh, but I do like what I do. They are very supportive and uh, I'm, I'm also what's known as a, a short sleeper. So I genetically do not, do not sleep very much. Uh, I'm not, my, my body doesn't require me to sleep more than about five hours a night. Uh, so that's given me an opportunity to kind of almost have an extra work day for compared to many of my peers. And um so a kind of combination of events, uh, some of which many people would not really care for, shouldn't be advised to do, but I do like what I do. I do like who I work with, um, and uh, I I work a lot. So um, that's probably what it comes down to. Great. So can you talk a little bit more about like your journey in uh, coaching check and field at LSU and how that kind of like help you as a coach sure so uh I'll, I'll take a little step back from before my time at lsu i was uh i was a track and field athlete myself division one level for those who are uh international listeners and that's the highest level of collegiate sport uh in the u.s uh, but i was kind of a middling uh maybe slightly above average track and field athlete myself, but I was really passionate about the sport. I competed at a uh, 
kind of middling tier university and then uh, received my master's degree as a graduate assistant coach uh, at that same university where I competed. So I, I did my undergraduate degree, finished competing, and then went on to coach at that same university in what's called a graduate assistant position where you do your master's degree and then you're also coaching. Uh, it was a mid, mid-major mid school, uh, meaning that it wasn't one of these schools that maybe the international listeners would have ever heard of. Uh, but uh, I then went on to LSU. So I applied at LSU and LSU at the time was a, a really top flight track and field university. And I went there uh, not having ever experienced world-class track and field, really. I was a fan of it. I was somewhat familiar with the training process. But when I went there, I started to work with um, a variety of uh, coaches who were legends in the field. Uh, During my four years there, we won six team national championships. Uh, A coach named Boo Schexnader took me under his wing. I worked with him for three to five hours a day. Uh, he gave me a lot of responsibilities. It was through through LSU. I made connections with other le- legendary coaches like Lauren Seagrave and Dan Papp, who uh, subsequently became a another I- huge influence on me. Uh, Dan is probably known to many of your listeners for his work with Altus. And this was all long, long before Altus was uh, ever organized. Um, so I was introduced to, you know, legends of the coaching world in track and field. Uh, we had a lot of success. Uh, I was immediately got to see what it took to compete at that level, uh, what the level of coaching was, the how to how to manage these high level athletes, et cetera. It was really really eye opening for me, not just the, to learn the training theory, but also to manage how you manage athletes of this caliber and um, how you, how you run a team, not just uh, from the training aspect of it, but the head coach is one of the most successful head coaches in the history of the NCAA. And uh, to see what, how he handled the team to have perennial success year on year, we were just very, very successful uh, was really eye opening and, and learned a lot of things that I, subsequently took to my business because you could see that uh, this uh, coach, Pat Henry, was excellent at bringing in a really good, surrounding himself with a really good staff, people who were as smart or smarter than him, and then letting them do their thing. And I think for anyone that's working in a team environment, whether that's a, a business team or a sports team, uh, if you are at the top of that uh, team, the head of the pyramid, so to speak, that you can really do a lot if, if you just surround yourself by really, really smart, really good people. Uh, a lot of people make the mistake of being worried about having those types of people around them because they make them look worse. But the reality is that those people will make you look better <laughs> and, uh, if you, and you'll learn and everybody will improve. So it just raises the entire level if you can surround yourself by really smart people. Great. So at that time when you work under like Coach Boo, is is he still coaching the jump events? 
So Boo is largely retired. I actually just met with him uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, he's no longer at LSU. He is working with a handful of athletes uh, on a private basis and mostly just consulting now. Um, he was at LSU up until last year and played a huge role in the training of some of their really successful jumpers, uh, most notably Javon Harrison, and uh, handled the weight room programming for most of the team. And they were really, really successful during those years. Uh, and But has stepped away this year and uh, is largely just doing some consulting and coaching education. Uh, he, you know, is, uh, if you ask anyone in, in the sport of track and field, he's, he is a legend, uh, you know, in terms of his coaching education, what he's given to the field and the sport as, as well as, um, his coaching credentials, you know, he's coached, uh, an Olympic silver medalist and multiple NCAA and, uh, USA track and field national champions. So he's a guy that, uh, has done a lot and has made a dent in the sport um, and influenced a lot of people, including myself. Great. So kind of want to start, I kind of want to ask the question for like training. Okay. Yep. So uh, as a track coach, um, I know there's like the Charlie Francis, like uh, kind of bring up the short to long approach. So can you like uh, explain to us what exactly is short to long approach? Sure. So uh, this is a training theory popularized by Charlie Francis. However, uh, it was not invented by him and it's used by many track and field coaches and I think has a uh, serves as the periodization format uh, for developing speed. So when we say short to long, uh, it means that we're starting the year training very short sprint repetitions or acceleration. And then as we progress through the year, we're moving towards longer sprint repetitions to where we're actually hitting top speed on some of those. Now, this is contrary to what is oftentimes done in uh, more endurance biased training programs. Uh, in an in, in the endurance world, if you were training a long distance runner, or if you were training, um, I don't know, even many uh, many strength programs, you start with a higher volume, and then you get shorter, right? So you might do ten rep sets first, and then do eight rep sets, and then six rep sets, and you get heavier, and you you reduce the number of reps per set. In the distance running world, you, what you oftentimes do is run a lot of slow high volume work early and then you progress to faster work as the year progresses well when it comes to sprinting uh, that doesn't make sense it works with the endurance community because what you're doing is uh, that long to short format is effectively specificity for developing an endurance but you're starting with uh, longer work and uh, then getting shorter and faster um, but in the uh, sprint world, if you're trying to enhance speed, that there are several key things that we need to understand. One is that uh, speed is really only developed through sprinting well. So, uh, and that requires an effort 
somewhere above 90%, in my opinion. And so doing a lot of volume when the intensity is very low is not going to be very beneficial. Uh, second, we have to get to top speed at some point. And we know that top speed running, sometimes called maximum velocity, is uh, something that is potentially injurious uh, if, an, if an athlete isn't ready for it. It's one of the most demanding things you can do in sport is to run upright sprinting at top speed. You really need to prepare for it. You need to have a, have a good lead in and a progression to it. This isn't the case with distance running. And even with most things you do in the weight room, you don't really have that same likelihood for injury. But uh, with sprinting, we know that we need to get to top speed. We need to address it in the training, but we probably can't do it from day one. So the thought is that, hey, in track and field, uh, in most sport, in most events, let's say even the 100 meters, these athletes are reaching top speed, uh, somewhere around 60 to 70 meters, and then they're actually decelerating. So they're reaching top speed, holding it for about 10 to 20 meters, and then they're decelerating for about 20 meters. So that means in a given race, you have about 60 meters of acceleration, you have about 20 meters of top speed running, and then you have about 20 meters of speed endurance. You're trying to hold on to the speed that you built up. Now, my thinking on this is that even in the shortest event in outdoor track and field, the fastest athletes can't maintain their speed throughout the first 100 meters, through the first, through the 100 meters. They can't maintain their speed. They're decelerating. And there's a progression, right? If, if we want to run the 100 meters, uh, we have to run fast for, for longer than we can run fast. So we, we want to... Before we can run fast for long, we need to be able to run fast, period, which is top speed. And before we can run fast, period, we need to be able to accelerate really well. So that's the underlying premise of the short to long training philosophy is that we develop acceleration qualities early so that we can run at top speed really efficiently and safely. And then once we have developed top speed qualities, now we can move to more speed endurance qualities, which is the opposite of what we oftentimes see in the endurance world where your uh, athletes are running really high volumes and pretty slow and then progressing to faster. But in the, in the sprint world, what I'd suggest is short to long where we do, we, we can sprint from day one but we just have to keep our reps very, very short, maybe 10, 15 meters. And then as the year progresses, the repetition length will increase. Maybe day one, we do 18 repetitions of 10 meters. And then we gradually progress to maybe where we're doing uh, 12 repetitions of 20 meters and then eight repetitions of 30 meters. And this progression can be extended over uh, multiple cycles of a year. And, uh, then once we've, once we've reached 30, 40, 50 meters, now we're approaching the athlete's top speed. And if, the, uh, now we can start to work on, 
uh, top speed mechanics and top, the physical qualities of top speed. So now we're, we might have some of our repetitions be in the 40 to 60 meter range. So they've gotten longer. We started off with 10 meter repetitions and now we're on 40 to 60 meter repetitions. And then, so that's the idea. We go short to long. And if you have an athlete that needs more speed endurance qualities, now you're going to uh, maybe take some of your repetitions longer than that even. So the idea again is that you can't run, you can't run long for, you can't run fast for long without running fast. You can't run fast without accelerating. So let's develop it in that order. We'll learn to accelerate. We'll learn to run fast. We'll learn to run fast for long. Um, and it's been very effective. There are coaches who do not follow that program at the highest levels of track and field. It's not absolutely necessary, but from my perspective, it's uh, a very logical and a safe way to design speed training programs. And even with my team sport athletes, I follow uh, what is effectively a short to long program. So in the off season, we do very short repetitions and then we gradually progress the length up to around 30 to 40 meters. And then we'll just stay at 30 to 40 meters. We don't need to keep progressing like say a track and field athlete would. But even in that community, I feel like there's a, a benefit to doing a short to long training progression because it's it's safe. Uh, you're not going to have athletes pull their hamstrings or have other uh, soft tissue related injuries oftentimes associated with top speed running. And it, it is very logically sound because the progression is what would be necessary to actually run really fast. Great. So uh, does that mean that even even when we, when you are training like the track guys, there's going to be a certain time of the year you just only train acceleration? Is, is that the case? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way I laid it out is a little bit simplified. Uh, of course, this could be kind of, uh, you know, we could talk about the short to long training periodization plans for, for, you know, hours. There are many ways to do it and there's so many details and nuance to it. But what I would say, what I would say is that early on in the year, I'm going to focus almost completely, almost completely on acceleration qualities. So all the repetitions will be relatively short. Now the means and the methods that we develop acceleration qualities will differ. Uh, and I can talk about that in a little bit, but the we won't progress to top speed running for maybe several months, uh, depending on how long that you had uh, with your with your training plans. So for sure, there will be there will be some period of time where we only do accelerations. Uh, what that looks like on a day to day basis might be different from day to day, but it would only be in that short realm of. Uh, acceleration. Now, uh, even when we progress to the top speed running, so once we have gone a couple months, perhaps a couple training cycles of acceleration focused training, and we start to integrate some uh, top speed running, it doesn't mean that we're going to neglect acceleration. So the acceleration qualities will still stay in the training plan throughout the year. Uh, because again, thinking of this logically, you can never 
outside of contrived situations where there's a high speed treadmill or you're being towed down the track or you have uh, running down a hill, you can never get to top speed without accelerating maximally. You can never get to top speed without accelerating maximally. So we would never take out acceleration from the training plan because even when they're ready for top speed, they still have to be able to accelerate really efficiently. So we never want that physical quality, the the rehearsal of mechanics to uh, erode or decay at all because they, they'll always need it all year long. So uh, acceleration starts in the program and it's present throughout the end of the program. Maximal velocity focus will hop in somewhere in the middle of the training program when they're ready for it and persist through the end. And then speed endurance will come into the program after we've adequately developed top end speed. And then that will stay in through to the end. I love this. I love this. So um, I know in track and field that they have like off season and then there's like indoor season and after that is outdoor season. So during the indoor season, the shorts, the 100 meter sprinters or like 200, 200 meter sprinters, they mainly focus. They're probably going to be focusing on the, like the 60 meter sprint. So is that, is the like the last part of the off season and the indoor season matches like the the period that you only focus on um acceleration and probably the last part of indoor season you're gonna touch on max velocity and after that is that the case kind of so the way i when i have a, a sprinter uh let's use your example a 100 meter sprinter a 100 200 meter sprinter and i basically treat the indoor and outdoor season as two seasons. So we will build up into a peak for the indoor season. And then we will almost restart again. And at the beginning of the outdoor season, we will begin with a, a focus on acceleration again, and then gradually build up. Now, some people handle it uh, similar, maybe to what you said, you could because the races indoors are shorter, you could have it where you finish the indoor season and your focus is on top speed because this in the 60 meter dash, which is the, the shortest race of the indoor, indoor track and field schedule, uh, is 60 meters is really just acceleration and top speed there's no speed endurance for unless you are a, a novice or a youth athlete um and then but then what would happen would be they would finish their indoor season in march and then in may they would begin running outdoor track and field where the shortest distance for outdoor track and field is 100 meters which does require speed endurance so there's two ways of handling it you could Start your training in August and with pure acceleration work, do that for two months. Then you incorporate top speed, do that for two to four months, 
and now you and then you taper for one month and that takes you through the indoor season and then uh, once the indoor season is done, you could have a little mini cycle of just acceleration followed by top speed, maybe for a month of each, and then you're into speed endurance. That would be a a, a two a, a true two peak uh, annual cycle. So you'd have indoor season and outdoor season, you'd have two peaking periods. Now, an alternative way of doing it, which uh, is viable, it's not incorrect, would be you train acceleration for focus for three or four months. You train top speed for two months or so. That now takes you to your competition peak for indoor season, which is going to occur in March. And then instead of resetting and going back to a focus on acceleration, now you could just continue the progression and just go right into top speed, top speed running. Or speed endurance, top speed and speed endurance. So both ways can work well. Uh, I part of the reason why I like to reset is not just because of the uh, um, going back a little bit to work on acceleration more, but also because I find to stay in the really really intense work uh, and the more specific, less general higher intensity, lower volume work to stay in that same progression for an extended period of time uh, somewhat stunts their growth, their development. So uh, I I think one of the biggest things that can improve performance is actually uh, variance of training plans. So if all they're seeing is this linear progression over time uh, that they are more likely to get hurt. They're more likely to get injured. So what I like to do is, you know, we take, we start in the August, we build up to a peak in uh, March, and then we reset back down uh, before building up again. And this period here, this critical period where we reset is oftentimes where they see a lot of their gains in performance. And mentally it's, it's a lot easier on them because they've, they've made a change. You know, just like, you know, if you imagine eating your favorite food, right? You you could eat your favorite food uh, for a while, but after a while, you might get sick of it, right? You might want to change. At least one or two days a week, you have a change, right? You know, I, I love uh, sushi and steak. I could alternate sushi and steak every other day and be perfectly fine. But if all I had was sushi every single day... I might eventually get sick of it. I might feel like I want the steak. So this critical period here where we've gone from the high intensity, low volume speed work back down to an, a focus on acceleration where maybe it's a little bit more like general prep, a little bit more uh, less specific, a little bit more general, a little bit lower intensity, a little bit higher volume can really be beneficial. It's the steak matched with the sushi. You know, both are good. We we need to make sure that we uh, balance things out. It keeps athletes healthy. It keeps them engaged with the training process. Uh, and I think it leads to uh, a better secondary peak uh, in outdoor season. So it's, you can do it both ways. I've always preferred to, to do a double, what's called a double peak uh, macro cycle uh, where you have 
two two peaks within the annual plan and um sometimes if sometimes you could conceivably even have three if you had uh athletes who are competing internationally outdoors they might do the domestic calendar and then do the international calendar so it can be quite difficult if you look at in an olympic year uh, a very high level competitor might start training in august and they might continue without a break with training and competition all the way through the next September. You know, so there are sometimes that world championship events have been as late as September. So now you're talking about a 13 month training calendar. Uh, and in cases like that, it's really important that the athletes didn't just follow this linear progression the whole time that they had some level of change throughout. Nice. Nice. So, um, the next thing I want to ask is like when you focus on like um acceleration, uh, is there a total volume per session you would probably be aiming? Sure. So my general rule of thumb is around two hundred and forty meters of of acceleration. Now, there's nothing magical about that i think you can go a little bit above that and i think you can go a little bit below that uh, but this is a, a value that i found works really well for acceleration related training now i've had acceleration sessions be as short as 120 meters of total volume and as long as around 360 meters of total volume so that's a pretty decent window or variance of your session but for the most part i'm looking at keeping them around 240 meters so uh and then generally speaking what i will do in the course of a say a training cycle is i actually keep the total volume the same on a given day but what i do is i achieve that volume by manipulating the rep length and the number of repetitions so let's just say, for example, we're going to use 240 meters as our volume for uh, a four-week block. Now, if I use 240 meters, think of how many ways you can divide that into repetitions. If I really wanted to, I could do 24 repetitions of 10 meters. I generally wouldn't do that many repetitions, but let's say I might start with... Uh, something like 18, two sets of nine repetitions of 15 meters, two times nine times 15 meters. That's 240 meters. We could then on week two, let's say we wanted to go from doing 15 meter repetitions to doing 20 meter repetitions. So now I might do two sets of six repetitions of 20 meters, 240 meters again, but I've made the repetition length a little bit longer. Now, if I wanted to take a next step up and let's say do 25 meter repetitions. Now, of course, I can't get to 240 meters, but I can get to 250 meters by doing 10 repetitions of 250, 25 meters or two sets of five uh, times 25 meters. Now I'm at 250 meters. So I've kept the total volume equidistant. It's this stays basically the same throughout. But what I've done is I've, shifted the proportion of my sprint volume 
from early phase acceleration to later phase acceleration. So now we're doing reps that are longer. The average velocity of those repetitions is higher. And I'm exposing them to more and more distance at a higher velocity, closer to top speed running, closer to upright running. Cool. So 240 meters for like acceleration. How about like max velocity or top velocity? Is there like value? So it's a, it is a little bit trickier there because uh, here's the thing. With top speed, as I said, without uh, having a pulley system, without having a downhill grade to run into the top speed, without using a high-speed treadmill, there's no way to get to top speed without accelerating. So you can't get to top speed unless you accelerate maximally or accelerate to maximum speed. So there are a variety of ways that you can get to top speed uh, through uh, unassisted means. So we could do what I call a flying sprint where we use a sub maximal acceleration period and eventually arrive at top speed. And then we run 20 meters or so at top speed, right? So sub maximal period. Let's say, for example, an athlete, if they ran 100%, could reach top speed at 40 meters, okay? So if they run at 100%, they'll reach top speed at 40 meters. And then from there, we can run another 20 meters at top speed, okay? So that's a 60-meter repetition of which 20 meters of it, one-third, was at top speed, uh, but the whole thing was maximal. So we've run 240 or we've run 60 meters of maximal sprinting, 40 meters acceleration, 20 meters or one third at top speed. Now there are other ways to do that. Uh, think about, for example, uh, what happens when you maximally accelerate your car. So anyone who's driven a car and tries to drive it really fast off of the stoplight, what happens to the fuel economy? It goes down. Same thing is true with uh, our efforts. If we try to give a maximal effort on a sprint, the fuel economy goes down. We burn through a lot of our ATP and creatine phosphate. So that means the energetic resources to be able to do these repetitions is very demanding. So what if we take that same athlete and instead of running a maximal 40 meter acceleration, we just give them 45 meters or 50 meters. And instead of going pedal to the metal as hard as you can for 40 meters, we now let them gradually build in to that top speed. That's the same thing as being having a gradual acceleration on a car. It's less energetically demanding. Now we've increased the distance, of course, but because we've done that now perhaps it's may maybe we can spend a little bit more time uh in top speed or we can do more repetitions at top speed uh, there are a variety of other ways to get there as well uh, i i'll use methods like what's called a sprint float sprint so in a sprint float sprint we have three segments segment one uh this is a this is a maximal or near maximal acceleration segment two this would be what i'd call a float uh, this is where we are taking our foot 
off the gas, but not putting it on the brakes. So we want athletes to just feel like they can run fast and relaxed. And then that third and final segment, we use the float section to build directly into a final sprint section. Uh, and this allows us, it's very, very demanding, but allows us to teach athletes to run relaxed, but also gets us a, a long exposure to upright sprinting and, and top speed running mechanics. Um, and then I've used a variety of other methods as well. I do use towing devices occasionally to get top to get athletes to top speed. I will use uh, wind wind in our back whenever I whenever I have that opportunity. We have used small downhills to get athletes to top speed uh, quicker and with less effort than it would take if they were to do it maximally. But depending on how you get to top speed, will vary how much how many uh, total repetitions you can do and how much total volume you can do generally speaking i'd like for athletes to spend about uh, 100 to, to 200 meters of total volume at top speed over the course of a week so 100 to 200 meters of total volume over the course of a week it might happen in just one session it might happen in two sessions but the idea here would be that uh, it's that time when they're at 92 to 95 plus percent of their own maximal velocity that counts towards this value. So just because you're running with full intent uh, does not mean you're at 92 to 100 percent of your max velocity. I need to see uh, you in that range. Of, of your individual speed to be able to count towards the total volume that I'm talking about here. Just to clarify. So 100 to 200 meter of like top velocity means that like the last part, the last 20 meter part of the 60 meter run. Am I right? Correct. Yep. Yep. Correct. And so then you could maybe get in five repetitions or maybe you do uh Maybe you split it over two days. Perhaps if you just ran 100 meters, now you've run, if you ran 100 meters, now that alone would account for somewhere between 20 and 40 meters of top speed running or running in that 92 plus percent percentage. Cool. So I, as I remember, your facility don't have like 100 meter track, right? It's more, is it 60 or... It's 60. Yep. So that's a, we have worked our way around that because we, we will use uh, a variety of different means to get athletes to top speed more quickly. And, and what we'll also do is we spend a lot of time outside. So in an ideal world, we can go outside um, and where the track is not limited, but in the facility uh, we will use uh banded assistance so we'll actually slingshot athletes to top speed and by doing this we can get athletes to top speed within about 15 meters so athletes that are fast enough that it would normally take them around 50 meters to reach top speed i can get them to top speed in about 15 meters so they've gone from they've gone from 50 meters to get to top speed and i can get them to 15 one five meters in top speed by using some banded assistance, uh, assistance with an A. And uh, so then what's happened is I've made it very easy for them 
I've effectively cheated them, cheated the acceleration process, and they can do more repetitions at top speed because of that. They can spend more time within a given session at top speed. Cool. So, uh, so when it comes like speed endurance, um, would you do like is it is it sort of like programming things like tempo run or like or is it like a one hundred meter full out sprint or like one hundred twenty meter that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think that's so. I I would classify speed endurance. I classify speed endurance as anything above about eighty meters. Uh, eighty meters, sixty to eighty meters is what I'd call short speed endurance. If you get above eighty meters, it's probably true, uh, true or proper speed endurance. And then I would take that up until around one hundred and fifty to two hundred twenty meters, depending on how developed your athlete is. Uh, for a high level athlete. Speed endurance uh, could be done through 220 meters. Now, again, I think we need to focus when talking about speed endurance on the fact that it's speed. So doing longer, slower reps is not speed. It is something else. It's conditioning. It's fitness. Uh, so those types of things have a place in the training plan, but are not the same as uh, true speed work. So... Uh, yeah, uh, speed endurance would be something in the realm of like 80 to 200 meters, give or take a little bit, depending on the level of the athlete you're dealing with. Now, the rep distance is not the only variable that you're concerned about because we need to keep the athletes fresh enough that they can execute at a high level. So if, for example, we did 80 meter repetitions, but we only allowed the athlete one or two minutes of rest. Now, the first repetition might be speed endurance, have an element of speed endurance, but the second one would not be speed endurance because it would, uh, they'd already be too fatigued from that first one. So we need to have a lot of rest in between these repetitions um, to be able to ensure the intensity that we're looking for. Uh, there are a couple ways to develop similar uh, metabolic qualities associated with speed endurance, even if you're not running that long. Uh, if, for example, you were to run 40 or 50 meters with insufficient recovery in between. So let's say we run 40 meters, rest a minute, run 40 meters, rest a minute, run 40 meters, rest a minute, run 40 meters. So we've done 160 meters uh, and we've rested very little. A minute is probably too short for most people to run uh, that long. Then we would get very similar metabolic stimulus from that workout to a true speed endurance session. Uh, it's not ideal, but for those of you that are perhaps training in the winter or you're trying to get in a speed endurance session and you don't have access to an outdoor track, maybe you just have a hallway that you're running through or a private training center with a with a shorter uh, sprint track, you can get similar physical qualities uh, and stimulus if you just shorten the rest. So we have to have the intensity. That's a given. We ideally have the rep length and adequate rest. But if you don't have the adequate length for the repetitions, 
you can effectively split up the runs. So just taking that example that I just gave you, 160 meter, 160 meter rep would be speed endurance if you run it maximally. Well, if you don't have 160 meters of space to run, you could just chop it into three or four pieces and then take inadequate rest. And then you get that similar physical stimulus. It's not ideal, but it is something that is can be useful to have in your uh, coaching toolbox if you don't have the facilities necessary to run true speed endurance. So is there any, so do you implement like things like tempo run or is these kind of stuff more like uh, recovery? Yeah, I think tempo runs are great, but I do view them as more recovery. So for example, I might program sprint work on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then tempo work would go on Tuesday and Thursday. And then depending on where, where we were in the season, the competitive season, uh, Saturday would be uh, another running workout. Sometimes it might be a harder version of tempo and other times it might be a uh, more speed endurance related session. Great. Great. So the next thing I want to ask is I, I saw like a chart you shared on Instagram discussing like, how would you like, how would you like progress like plyometrics? So can you like discuss a little bit about like, from basic plyo to like hard plyo, max and 10 plyo, sorry. Yeah. How would you program it? Sure. So I think uh, with plyometrics, just like sprinting, you can start uh, on day one as long as your progression is, is sound and makes sense. Uh, I look at four key variables for uh, progressing plyometrics or kind of thinking of plyometrics and uh, their intensity continuum. One is the height that you fall. So if you fall from a really high height, it's a, you're not, there's no way around it being a pretty intense form of plyometric. Uh, a very low, low fall, something that you might see on say jumping rope, skipping rope, that's pretty low intensity. It can be sustained for a long period of time. It's very safe something where you fall from a very high height, like a box jump, that's pretty difficult to, uh, that's pretty difficult to do with any uh, volume and is, is quite challenging for most athletes to, to do effectively without a significant progression. So the first thing that I would look at is like the, the jump height uh, or the fall height. And then the second, second thing I would look at is, uh, are they moving? right, left, forward, backward, if they're moving at all, then the faster they're moving, whether it's laterally or forward or maybe even backward, the more intensities. And then the third thing would be the number of con or the number of contact points. Is it double leg? Is it single leg? Is it double leg with uh, what I'd call a asymmetrical landing, like a lunge jump? Is it double leg with a temporally asymmetrical so a kind of a skipping action one foot contacts then the next foot contacts before takeoff or is it uh and then that uh, in each one of the, i would say the most intense is probably single leg and then uh also double leg has the potential to be very high but oftentimes is is not if you're real if all the other variables are lower and then the third thing to can or fourth thing to consider would be how compliant are you at landing 
if you're really compliant, the impact, you absorb a lot of the impact forces, makes it a little bit easier to handle that. So uh, in general, what I'd say is that we start with things like double leg contacts, relatively low landing, relatively low fall heights, and a pretty compliant uh, contact. And then we progress over time to things where the athletes are very stiff on the landing, that maybe we're doing some single leg landings, maybe we are doing some uh, falls from very amplified heights. So maybe we're doing depth drops or depth jumps. And we just progress using these four variables over time. And uh, we don't have to add weight. We don't have to uh, increase the volume significantly. As long as we're progressing along this continuum of these four variables, uh, we can ensure that the athletes will have a safe and effective progression. Great. So mm, last question before I let you go, okay? So uh, I know there's like a, a force velocity curve, like people try to implement that into our training. But when it comes to like sprinting or like uh, let's say like long jump or like high jump, there's like a minimum ground contact time, probably like 0 0.12 to 0 0.18. And there's gonna be people like four to five like vertical the vertical the vertical forces probably be like four to five times body weight. So how does that fit in like the force velocity curves? And should we still be following that? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think right now the research um, is is not uh, conclusive on force velocity profiling for athletes. Uh, I, I think that we need to be really careful about reading too much into using force velocity profiling for athletes. In theory, it works very well, but uh, force velocity is not the same as running speed. So we see people who have maximized their force velocity profile, but have not improved their speed. So that tells you right away there is a disconnect. Um, I do use the force velocity continuum, the wave, if you will, that shows that we have concentric strength, isometric strength is a little bit stronger, and then eccentric strength is uh, must be performed at high speeds, at high loads. I do use that as an as an underpinning foundation of my training philosophy, but. I'm a little hesitant to uh, try to create really detailed profiles for an athlete because I don't think the evidence suggests that it works. When when I first, uh, or a couple of years back, maybe five years ago, six years ago, I actually did experiment and tried to create force velocity profiles for athletes uh, using a timing system uh, as well as some jump tests. And it, it didn't, it wasn't very effective for me. Uh, I'm not sure if this is because I didn't know enough at the time, but all of the research that I've seen since then suggests that there's, we don't know enough to, to make it, to make that be a, a huge part of our training profile. Now, as you said, even on a jump contact, the ground contact times are 
around 0.12 to 0.18 seconds on a sprint, or maybe half of that, uh, as short as 0.08 of a second. And uh, almost nothing you're going to do in the gym will replicate those types of uh, force production, the rate of force production, uh, uh, time to peak force production. Nothing you'll do in the gym will replicate that. So instead of thinking of it in terms of like, here's this continuum and uh, we can place everything, meaning the gym, the plyometrics, the sprint work, somewhere on that continuum, really some things are going to be confined to certain parts on the force velocity continuum, meaning like the weight room is pretty much uh, largely going to operate on the concentric strength side of the force velocity continuum and maybe a little bit veer into the eccentric side of it. But it's not probably your best tool for developing the, the really fast eccentric qualities. Meanwhile, sprinting is going to be hard-pressed to operate outside of the left side of the force velocity continuum. It's, it's very, very eccentric dominant. It's very, very uh, rate of force development dominant. So uh, instead of thinking of it as like each element can has a place equally on this entire continuum. Instead, I type, like to think of it as we can place, there are certain tools for the job and uh, some tools don't work for certain jobs, right? Sprinting is not going to be your best tool to develop maximum strength, but the weight room is going to be your best tool for developing uh, maximum strength. So figure out which tool fits depending on where you're trying to train on the force velocity continuum and then use that use the appropriate tool for the job uh i'm as i said i'm still hesitant to create very detailed force velocity profiles for athletes or to design training programs around an individual athlete's force velocity profile because while it looks like it makes sense the evidence doesn't suggest that it, it makes a difference in terms of the training outcomes right now uh, and in fact from what i've seen and heard uh, a lot of individuals have used it with with no or negative effect. Cool, cool. So last thing, okay. I really enjoy our last conversation. I really love this one. Learn a lot. And always a huge fan of your work, man. So for those who are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? So uh, I have fallen off a little bit in terms of my social media uh, use, but I'm tr I'm trying to get back into it. I, I have to find the time really to do it. And but, but I probably most active on Instagram at at Mike Young PhD. Uh, I do have a coaching education course called the uh, Athletic Lab Coaching Academy that uh, myself and some really smart people have contributed to. It goes into things that we've talked about on this podcast, as well as many other periodization uh, elements, and strength training, best practices, and plyometrics, et cetera. Uh, that's a three-level or three-phase course. Um, and in fact, the first time I met you, I believe I was in Taiwan for that course. Uh, level one is now completely available online and uh, can be taken anywhere in the world. Level two and three are in-person courses. Uh, so I'm really passionate about coaching education. I have a, a large body of information out there, whether it's on 
by old websites, Elite Track or uh, podcasts or uh, YouTube channels that you can probably just find by Googling my name. But uh, Instagram and the Coaching Academy is where I've been spending the, the bulk of my coaching education efforts over the last couple of years. Great, great. Appreciate that, man. Thank you, Eric.